As we have been for over a year now, we turn to the book of Hebrews in chapter 3. We're up to chapter 3. And this is the occasion of the Lord's Supper, the celebration in our church of that. We're going to read the first three verses of chapter 3. The evening sermon, an applicatory sermon, will be the rest of the chapter in light of the first six verses. But these first six verses, first of all, the Word of God, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. This one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. And thus far we'll read this word of God, this beautiful word of God at Hebrews chapter 3, which begins, we need to remember, with a significant word, because every word is significant, but because this is a connective, which is a logical word, uh, a word of logic. The apostle is drawing conclusions from what he stated, and now he says, therefore. And actually, this therefore is similar to the first therefore of chapter 2. Therefore, we must give more earnest heed to the things we've heard in that both therefores of chapter 2 and chapter 3 are connected to this, the content of Hebrews 1 and 2, and the content is Jesus Christ, who is greater than the angels, greater than all the words of the prophets, and here in our text, greater than Moses. And so the therefores are uh, are significant because of the significant one who has been spoken of, even Jesus Christ. This is what the Hebrews needed to know and the book of Hebrews is all about. The significance of Jesus, who was only typified in the Old Testament, but who was far greater than all of the Old Testament office bearers and who was the fulfillment of all the types and shadows to which they pointed in the old economy or the old covenant we know as the Old Testament. And so we are alerted to something very significant, to what has gone before, and that is everything that God has been saying about the greatness of Jesus. And we are called here to consider this great one who is now described in these verses following the therefore in other ways. Not Entirely different, but really a summation of all that the Apostle has said will be said in these verses following in the verse of our text. And So when the uh, inspired writer tells us to consider him who is the Apostle and the High Priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, 
who was faithful to him, who appointed him, and so on. He's referring to something that's really a conclusion or even expressly stated in the other verses of chapters 1 and 2, of which we shall speak. And so it's important. One other thing by way of introduction, we are addressed here, as are the Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians who are addressed and were addressed in the first century, directly. There's what's called in grammar a direct address here. It's the first time in the book of Hebrews. There have been exhortations and so on, but here we are called, we are called right by God himself, therefore holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. We are called here directly. And beloved, I find in this something that we need to remember right now. The ministry of the gospel here at this text and here at this time is God calling us, each of us, directly to answer the question, what do you think of Jesus? In the word preached and in the word of the sacrament and the sacrament of the word, this is the question. What do you think of Jesus and consider him? Consider him, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So we want to consider the call to consider the Christ. We want to consider how we do this in three different ways. First of all, with awe and delight. Secondly, facing unrelenting challenges, some of which may be a surprise to you as we unfold the scripture and as we reflect upon that in light of the rest of the Bible. But then secondly, we would demonstrate whose household are we, and this uh, rises from the fact that Christ, in verse 6, is said to be a son over his own house. Whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end? So we want to consider this word that we may consider the Christ. With awe and delight, Jesus is mentioned here in the first time and the only time in the Bible as the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's Christ Jesus. He's the apostle. The apostle says this, or whoever wrote, the writer to the Hebrews wrote, and he says this so that we might remember that he's the sent one, because that's what an apostle is. He's an ambassador of God. And this is what has been spoken of in chapter 2. Before that, there was the fact that Jesus himself is God, by whom all things were made, and who upholds all things by the word of his power, and who's the brightness and the glory of God. Now that, first of all, is Christ who's sent from God. Let us remember, we are to consider he is God, and that fills us, it ought to, with awe and delight. He's God. The one we profess who is Jesus the Christ, who's come in the flesh, is first of all God in his very person. He's this divine second person of the Holy Trinity, no less than the Father, equal with the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the triune God of our salvation. This is the one we are to consider. 
That's an odd word, you might say, for us and God. Surely we could come up with a power, more powerful word like worship. Yes, indeed, we could. But the Bible here wants us first to consider this God. Consider him. And as we'll see, this means to consider him very carefully, to observe to the full all that this means. But he's God. Jesus is God. And this is, must have been an amazing, an impossible thing to believe for shepherds who heard of him and wise men who came and worshipped at his feet and Mary who pondered these things in her heart and everyone who saw him as a man. The revelation of the Bible is that this Christian religion worships this Christian God who is God in the flesh. He's God. God. And that means we are to consider Jesus is the I am that I am. Moses met in the burning bush. The I am that I am. We are to consider that he is the one before whom the worlds were made, who made the worlds, the creator he is. And as Hebrews especially emphasizes, he's the provider. By the word of God, he upholds all things by the Son and the economy of providence, God upholds all things as God. Amazing. What hands he has, though he has no hands as God. What a mind, what wisdom he has, though for in his incarnation his, his mind is in a brain. And God himself is this God who's beyond brains, beyond the limits of our brains, and so is Jesus in his divinity. He's wise knowing the end from the beginning. He's eternal and without change. This God who steps into time and becomes subjects to the, the processes of growing and learning and so on. He's God. The confession of the fathers and ours, and we want to consider this high priest and apostle of our confession, is that Jesus remains God, though he becomes a man. Takes on, we like to say, maybe more formulaic, more accurate, Jesus doesn't become a man so much as takes on humanity, adds to his divinity this real human nature. And so, he's God. And everything that the Bible says about God and that the heavens declare of the glory of God and the creation itself and the snow and the trees that are bent over under this amazing carpet of snow testifies of God. And we know, in light of the Bible, of God who is revealed in Jesus. And so there's this gospel here. And that's what the apostle is reminding the people of here when they're to consider Jesus, who's God. He's their God. He's their God. Not Moses, not angels, not prophets of old, but Jesus is their God. They are to worship him. And he's this God who's come down and was made a little lower than the angels, chapter 2, for the suffering of death and crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. He's this 
God with us. Consider that. Consider that. Consider then the words that are used of him who's God with us in our text and the description of him. He's the apostle, the sent one, the ambassador, the official one on the mission of the ages, the mission of God himself. He comes to do the will of the Father and not his own will. He has his marching orders. He is this God. And when he is exalted after he is led to his demise and the atonement is made, he's exalted to the right hand of God and to do the will of God opens the seals of the book of the counsel of God. He's found in heaven after his glory is earned and he dies the inglorious death of crucifixion and cursing for us. So he's God and with us as Savior and High Priest. High Priest. The one who's dedicated to God. The one who in the Old Testament came to represent God to the people and the High Priest would have the name Jehovah on his mitre, his cap. But he would also represent the people whose names, the tribes whose names were written on his breast to God. And so there's this two-way thing going on. He's the mediator of the covenant. God represented to the people and the people represented to God in this wonderful covenantal existence that God calls the people of God to enjoy through a high priest, Old Testament. But Jesus is said to be the high priest, the high priest. Later on, he's going to be said to be far greater than Aaron, the high priest ever was, or any of the order of Aaron. He's after the order of Melchizedek, eternal order of the one high priest. He is this. He's this Christ, the anointed one. He's this Jesus, this man, the name of Jesus in his humanity, this God with us, this wonderful God. Now, we're to think about that. And the word consider... In our text, in verse 1, is also a word used in Hebrews 10, verse 26, I believe, where to consider one another to provoke unto love and good works and so on. And the word consider, and I want to spend a little time on that, is significant, and it describes considering as something that has to do with observing carefully so you learn. Like when it's used, consider the ravens in Luke chapter 12. God feeds them. They don't worry about where they're going to get food. God feeds them. Consider the lilies, how they grow, and, and that they're of all this glory that's in them, and they don't have to seek glory. They are given glory. Consider that. The idea in those places is like the idea here. We're to consider Jesus very carefully to learn the lesson of the ravens, the lilies, and the lesson also that Jesus reminds us of when we are to consider the beam in our own eyes 
when we're considering pulling out the little speck in somebody else's eye, consider very carefully what you're about here. Learn the lesson of your pride. Learn the lessons of God's providence. And here, learn, learn the gospel that is here. Learn that. Think of that very, very intently. Not just once, but be always considering this. See, we have a problem, as we'll mention in a little bit here, of the challenges. We, we're not very considerate of God. It's not very considerate of us to forget God. We go through life and to miss it, to miss this significant thing of God with us, similar to the, the problem that's addressed in Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must give the earnest heed to the things, the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. How shall it be if we neglect so great a salvation? Here is similar. We need to consider the high priest the, and the apostle of our confession. And later on, we'll see that the Old Testament people did not and they could not enter into the promised land. Hinted at this warning at the end of our text in verse 6, Christ is the son over his own house whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Consider Jesus. Think on him. Revealed in the Bible, preached on in the world and now to you. Partaken of in the supper. And as we exhort one another daily, consider him whom we represent, whom we confess, and who we are to live for. Think, learn the lesson. Learn the lesson as... Those who saw Jesus in the flesh were to learn. But these Hebrews, most of them probably never saw Jesus. They, this letter was written a little later, maybe 30, almost 40 years significantly after Jesus died and rose again. But consider him now, 2,000 years after this. He's still Jesus. Notice the Bible doesn't say here, Therefore, holy brethren, you read in the 21st century in Comstock Park, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider him who was the apostle and the high priest of somebody else's confession. Consider him who made a house a long time ago and consider the architecture of the house and the different rooms and it's an open space and we're not. No. Consider him, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, who is your apostle and your high priest, your God and your Savior. This alludes to challenges, unrelenting challenges of considering at all Jesus or considering him well. The Jews had a problem. 
And their problem is addressed front and center in the book of Hebrews. Jewish Christians are written to, I believe, here. Those who had a beginning of a confession of Christ, they confessed Jesus Christ. This is what the text says here. But who were in danger of letting this slip, going back into Judaism, of seeing the necessity for circumcision and the keeping of other laws and so on. And they might justify it because the Old Testament was a great thing, a great revelation of God. Let's never undermine the truth of the Bible that says the, the Old Testament economy was a great thing. The law, the giving of the law were great things of God. And there were great advantages and promises and covenants revealed to the Old Testament people of God. That's why these things are addressed in Hebrews understanding that the people might be led to think that those Old Testament things were so great that that's all we need and this Jesus just has to be a part of it all and not the fulfillment of it all, negating the purpose of it all or at least fulfilling the purpose of it all so we don't go back to weak and beggarly elements. They had prophets that's why the apostles to say, but Jesus is the word. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Angels, mysteriously, were there helping to direct the giving of the law to the people of God. Acts chapter 7, you can read of that. I think verse 56 or verse 58. Angels were there at Sinai. Angels, messengers of God. And they had priests and they had kings and they had all these things. And here, look at what the author does in this chapter, in this section. He reminds them of Moses. And they didn't really need to be reminded. After speaking of our confession, Christ Jesus, speaking of him as faithful to him, the father who appointed him, compares them to Moses. Moses also was faithful in all his house, and so on. Moses, like Abraham, was great in the eyes of the people of God. You don't want to leave Moses. You don't want to not consider him in adopting this new religion. Surely Moses has a place, and Christ a place maybe with him. Moses was considered by the rabbis of old, maybe some of the extreme ones, I don't know. Moses was considered to be worth a thousand souls of Israelites, as they say. Moses was comparable to angels, maybe greater than angels. That's what they were saying. Moses, the lawgiver, the basis for Phariseeism, and Phariseeism alluded to him all the time. And the Pharisees did. Moses in his glory, remember that? When he met with God in the mountain, his face so shone that the people said, Moses, wear a mask. We can't, we can't handle this. The glory of God is reflected in you. And Moses' glory as the, the mediator of the old covenant was seen at different times and unique and strategic times to show Miriam and Aram and the others who rebelled against him that he is indeed the sent one from God. 
who came from the burning bush to Egypt to lead the people out. Moses is great. But Jesus is greater, far greater, says Hebrews 3. Moses is faithful, to be sure. Moses is faithful. But Jesus is faithful, and this one, verse 3 says, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house is more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, for he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of things, those things which would after would be spoken afterward, but Christ is a son over his own house, whose house are we? Now to sum this up, what's being spoken of here is that Moses uh, is not the builder of a house, and the house is the church, whose house are we. The house was the people of God of the old covenant, mostly Jews, and now from every tribe and tongue, the house is what God makes, the church. Moses wasn't a builder of the house, but Jesus is. Moses, in fact, was a part of the house. But Jesus is the builder of the house, meaning he's God, and meaning he is the mediator of God, who is the one who lays down his life to build the foundation of the house and who builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us, against it. So even, to use the analogy, even as the house builder is greater than the house, because the house is just a thing and the builder is the architect and the builder controls what goes into the building of the house. So Jesus is greater than Moses, who's a part of the house. He's a part of the plan as subject to God. And Jesus is God and he is the one who fulfills all things, not Moses. So there's the comparison that's why Jesus has more glory than Moses, and we should give him more glory as we consider him. But this, is, this was a problem. And maybe a problem more for the Jews than for us, that we would drift back into Old Testament things, but it was a real problem. And the real problem was this. They had this old thing, this tried and tested thing, this people that had given them the land for a while, even though right now they're under the Roman rule. But this was good enough, and good enough to, to raise their children in the fear of God and to have this law and testimony, to have the Psalms and to sing them, and to have a form of religion. And the danger was, we're just going to stay there. And if Jesus comes along, and yes, we believe in Jesus, but they ended up being tempted to believe in a Jesus too, T-O-O. And not in a Jesus only. They were tempted to hold to the old as well as to the new, and somehow to combine them, but the combination could never be made not the way they were seeking to make it. Because they wanted the law, they wanted the law, and not the fulfillment of the law, the fulfiller of the law. They wanted something, some ordinance that they could keep some denial that would show them that they are not of this world as the people of God. But their problem was they missed 
the cross and the grace of God necessary to save sinners. Always the problem of going back to the Old Testament legalistic ways, and that was their problem. In fact, the author to the Hebrews reminds us that Moses was indeed faithful in all his house as a servant, but Jesus is the son. And he was this as a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, meaning the things that now were upon them in the New Testament. That's significant, beloved. The Old Testament was just a testimony, a witness of other things. It didn't testify of itself. It wasn't an end to itself. Along the prophets, they didn't even know what they were saying, except they looked into their own writings, searching for the sufferings and the glory of Christ that were in them. They knew there was something that had to be more than what the thing was they were writing. They were great in anticipating what would be this great revelation of the gospel, but after all, there were nothing in themselves. They needed the afterword. They needed Jesus. They needed the fulfillment of the Messiah, the incarnation, his suffering and death on the cross, his resurrection. They needed that just like we need that. And they needed to consider that. Or they would die. That's the significance of the confession we make of Jesus only. Not Jesus plus the Old Testament economy. And I said, we don't have maybe that problem that the Jews did who were born physical flesh and blood of Abraham, but we, we do have a problem with old things that can get in the way, even old religious things that can get in the way of confessing just Christ and loving just Christ more than the old, test, the old forms. Like we can, we could, though this seems a rare bird indeed nowadays, we could fall in love with our confessions Reformed confessions, Presbyterian confessions, good old things. We could fall in love with the faith and we could confess that that's everything and that really is just our, what we're related to. We're related to a creed and we can, we can exegete a creed and so on. And the problem would be that we're sticking with an old thing or a thing instead of with the Savior and our consideration is just intellectual. It's not a consideration that involves our whole being in a relationship that's more than a formality by far. And maybe it is, and this is certainly the case in evangelicalism, that the challenge we face of considering the Christ and learning at his feet and being a disciple of him Maybe our problem is mostly the, the new things, the new things, the new doctrines, the new message and the new method of Christianity. Jesus is just one of many, maybe not Moses, that's too old, but a new guy or a new prophet or a fourth John, as some of the Johns who are popular in evangelicalism are called. New first John, Piper, John, whatever else. 
instead of Christ. A new way of reaching out and a new methodology that knows the geography and the demography of the community, that's going to get the people in, in addition to the truth. Now, something to this. There's always some little bit of wisdom and practicality that the church needs to learn. But when it becomes the be-all and end-all of everything, what marks a church, we have a problem. When the confession of Jesus, the apostle and high priest and the great builder of the church is substituted for with some other thing and some other project and committee, whatever, you got a problem at Sovereign Grace Church. The new things, like the Athenians, so are the evangelicals today, quite a few. The vast majority interested in something new, something different. We have all kinds of challenges, confessing Christ and really considering and learning from him and consistently being in his word, challenges of things that are great in this world and we can Love them more than Jesus, who is great above the world and in the world. Things that lead us down, whether it's sin or stuff or providence of God. And maybe the problem we have is the direction I would call sideways. You see, when you consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession and the great builder of the church, you've got to look up. Really, you have to look up, even as you're looking at the Bible, you look up by faith because he's high. He's the most high God with us. But our problem is we're looking down not only, but this way and that way and the other way and behind us in all the directions that show we're really directionless. All the things to do, all the things that can entertain us, all of the the traps we have in being anything but real confessors of Jesus. Beloved, we are addressed today. Holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, you consider the apostle and high priest of your confession and of your life. You consider that. Because this is how we demonstrate the reality of Christ not only, but the reality of who we are. And this is my final point. We are people who are Christ's house. We're built by him. We're not self-made. Our marriages aren't self-made if they be in the Lord. Marriages to come, unless the Lord builds a house, they who labor, labor in vain. How do we show that? I'm going to speak more at length on this and the danger of this in the sermon tonight. But there's this if clause at the end. Whose house we are if we hold fast, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. It seems like there's a tenuousness there, a threat there so much that 
we might be the house of God at one time and not be it the next time. The apostle visits or the next generation. Well, certainly, beloved, the importance of this is and should not be lost upon us. If we are Christ, we are his house. We are his church. We love one another. We love Christ together. And we love God's people in their local churches, true churches and so on. We love that. We love them. But it's all about demonstrating whose house we are. And I would pose to you that for this, we need to know who we are. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in the very first verse, we are holy brethren. We are holy brethren of Christ and of one another. Christ is the Son over the house, and we're his brethren, Hebrews 2. And we are partakers of the heavenly calling. Our God has called us to heaven out of the darkness of this world into his marvelous light. And we partake of heavenly blessings and a heavenly future. We are those who are his by grace. So shall we demonstrate it, beloved? How should we do that? In our considering, that's how. And only let it be a considering that's so real that we are happy about it. Look at this. We hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Here's a people that's not bored again with Christianity. It's born again. And it's alive with a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Are we born again? Is our church a revived place, a living place, and over and over again becoming more alive as the Word of God infiltrates the inner recesses of our hearts and becomes more real in our confession? Is this us? Are we a people here as a house that considers the builder, the foundation, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone, Jesus, and is never the same? Because every time we consider and reconsider, we're considering that God has come into our miserable existence and considered us. And he's loved us anyway. What a God. Hold him fast. Amen.